It's good to be with you this morning, and I'm glad that you're here with us. And, uh, and so today we, uh, we get a chance to kind of finish up this series that we've been doing for this past month in the book of Philemon. And we've, we've looked at it from multiple different perspectives, and today we're going to look at it from the perspective of the recipient, Philemon. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to just kind of wrapping this up and, and, and these last few thoughts that we have together. Uh, out of this very, very small, but I think very, very powerful letter. There's a guy named Stan Mooneyham. Uh, he was an evangelist in North America in the 1960s and 1970s um, and, and beyond, but that was when he was really doing a lot of his traveling, and, and he was part of the Billy Graham crusade. And, and as part of that, he traveled all over the world uh, with the mission of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And one of these trips was into Eastern Africa. And he related a powerful story from that trip. While he was walking along a wilderness path with some of his friends that were locals from the area, Stan became aware of this very, very sweet aroma in the air around him. And, and he began looking up into the trees, and he was looking in the surrounding bushes for the source of where this fragrance was coming from. And he was unable to find the source, and he asked one of his friends who pointed to some small blue flowers that were behind them on the path. And the flowers lay crushed underneath the feet of them as they had traveled. And, and they were so small, it was kind of hard for Stan to believe that he and his group could smell the fragrance that far away. And the locals quickly corrected him. He was not actually smelling the flower any longer. The fragrance was actually coming from his own shoes. Uh, upon crushing the flower, Stan had released kind of this oily perfume that was inside of it. And it now clung to him as he moved forward. And marveling, Stan asked what the name of the flower was. And the local friend just shrugged and said, we just call it the forgiving flower. And upon reading that story, I was kind of reminded of a poem that I heard in my undergraduate days at school. And it was a short verse by Ella Giles, and it was about describing forgiveness. And it used the same imagery as this flower. And it bears the same title, the forgiving flower. It goes like this. Forgiveness is the fragrance, rare and sweet, that flowers yield when they are trampled on by our feet. That reckless tread the tender, teeming earth. For blossoms crushed and bleeding yet give birth to pardon's perfume. From the stern decrees of unforgiveness, creation ever chooses to flee. It's an amazing object lesson, I think. And, and it's one that's resonated me, with me quite a bit as I consider going forward um, with the story of Philemon's perspective in our reading today. We spent the last three weeks, like I said, looking at the perspective of the church in Colossae that's being written to, the perspective of Paul the writer, the perspective of Onesimus, the one who's bearing the letter, who actually is the one who really, really needs the forgiveness and the help of both the church and Philemon. And now today we end up with the recipient, with Philemon himself. Um. We've, we've had to realize that this letter has had amazing things to say about the community of Christ Jesus. One, that we're not individuals. The problems that we bear, we bear together because we're a community in Christ. And if we don't bear them together, we bear them together unknowingly. We either know that we're doing it or we don't know that we're doing it. But we bear our struggles together as a community of followers of Jesus. We also learn that we cannot hope to find kingdom outcomes that bring peace and redemption in our lives if we go through life trying to wrestle and control our lives like they're little empires. We also learned 
that the act of humbling oneself, even when one may not be entirely wrong, is probably one of the most transformative things that we can do both for ourselves and for others, rather than spending our lives running from reconciliation or holding grudges because those things have never been transforming and they've never been life-giving. And all those insights point to a greater question that we address today from Philemon's perspective. What does it mean for us to love and to forgive in the spirit of Christ? And how does that question find a concrete home in what Philemon is being asked to do for Onesimus? See, sometimes in order to ask the spiritual questions, we have to ask the practical ones too. And I think that's a really necessary thing in our lives. I think, I think a lot of times we get disconnected because theology is not a set of beliefs or ideas that we cook up in theory and leave them there in theory. Good theology is practical theology. Good theology is able to be worked out in my life. Good theology makes a difference not just in how I think. It makes a difference in how I behave, in how I live, in what I do, in how I treat people. If I can't actually connect what I believe to how I live, I may need to examine whether I've filled in, whether I've actually am practicing what I would call practical theology. And here's what I mean by that, okay? Good theology is willing to look at situations in our lives and ask, not just from our own small perspective, but to ask from God's perspective, what's going on here? Why is what's happening happening? What should be happening? And how do I respond? See, if I... if, if if I have a set of beliefs over here and I have a life over here and those things never intersect, am I actually being a disciple? Am I actually practicing theology? The knowledge of God. Because the knowledge of God is designed to get worked out in my life. The knowledge of God is designed to get worked out in my day. And so these, these questions, what's going on, what is happening, why is it happening, what should be happening, how will I respond, these are actually theological questions that we ask in our relationships, that we ask in our work, that we ask in our desires, that we ask in our sacrifices every single day. There is no part of life, big or small, that practical theology does not intersect for us. It's taking what we believe about God and setting it free to run around and move in our lives again. Rather than being quarantined off into the belief section of our brains, never to interact with reality. And so for Philemon, the first question that, that he has to ask is what is the significance of Onesimus' conversion? What is the significance of that going to be in his practical life, in his practical dealings? One thing that we touched on last week is that reconciliation doesn't mean moving back to the same place as before. You don't just make up and then go back to the way things were. Reconciliation moves forward into new things. And so if there's going to be reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon, they actually have to move someplace different than where they were before. They can't just, it's not just hitting the reset button on a relationship. Reconciling is moving into redemptive relationship. And that means new relationship, new possibilities, new frontiers. Okay? On the one hand, Onesimus is still a runaway slave. There has been trust broken. There has been authority dishonored. There have been laws that have been impinged upon. Okay? 
things can't be the same as they were before. You have to deal with that practically. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't matter what we believe, but but belief is fine as to what should happen, but let's put it into the practical. You're still dealing with an illegal runaway slave here, and that has huge cultural implications. You can't just ignore that because of belief, right? But let's also say you can't ignore the theological because of the practical, because Onesimus, he's a runaway slave, but he's not a slave anymore. He's something different now. By, by his conversion to Christ through Paul, he is not able to be sectioned off into a cultural category of, of, of status or of, you know, or of any of those things anymore. Those rules do not apply anymore, says Paul. For in Christ now there is no slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, man nor woman. You know, like all of these, all of these categories that we would shove people into don't they are all being surpassed by the unity of belonging to Jesus. And that's as much a reality as what's going on in the practical world. So you can't ignore this, but you can't ignore that either. And so this idea of, of like Onesimus being household property, which was the cultural reality... It doesn't apply anymore. He's encountered Christ. He's participated in knowing him in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and being raised in the new life of the resurrection of his blood. This fictive family kinship of the Roman and Greek household has actually been replaced with real family relationship. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Real kinship between Onesimus and Philemon. Brother to everybody that's in the Colossae church. And around the world, including you and me. Have you thought about that? These aren't just people that we're reading about, some people that are distant and disconnected from us thousands of years ago that are dealing with a problem. This is our brother and sister that are, you know, like, that are dealing with this in the church in Colossae. These are two brothers of ours that are dealing with this situation. We're connected to them. And because we're connected to them, this, is, this matters to us. We're all under the same family name of the same Father in heaven with a common spiritual Father in Paul. Nothing can, be sa- nothing can be the same in this reconciliation. And that's why this letter is framed communally, if we remember. Philemon and Onesimus in the church, they're all going to have to be accountable to each other to explore and effect a creative and equitable solution to these things that don't seem to match up very well. What does it mean for Philemon to call Onesimus, my brother the slave, because those things don't seem to fit together. How do you get those things to fit together when they don't seem to fit together? Most seem to think that Paul is asking Philemon to set Onesimus free. And there are things in this letter that imply this. In our culture, we're definitely naturally predisposed to this kind of legal liberation. I do want to point out that it raises some pretty practical problems that you have to consider. If Onesimus gets freed this way, it creates a host of logistical and moral problems for the church. Not the least of which is this. If he, as a running way, if he as a runaway, is seemingly rewarded with freedom in response for illegal activity and desertion, what damage is Philemon and his household going to incur as a result? And he's kind of a linchpin figure in this community, in the church community. 
if you look back, you know, if you look back at the beginning of this letter, the idea is not that just he's a good friend to Paul or even just a ministry partner with Paul. It sounds like he's kind of part of this massive network of bringing the gospel all around modern-day Turkey and even into Syria. Okay? What happens if he caves as part of that network? I don't know. It's a real problem. There's also the question of, would it set a precedent then requiring Philemon to free all of his servants as a result? Would the church then, here's an interesting thought, would the church find itself absolutely swamped with a whole host of really spiritually anemic converts that are really just looking for a change in their status? They don't even really believe any of this. They're just like, oh, look, he got free for doing that. We'll go do that too. I don't know. It creates some really interesting questions to wrestle with, though, from a practical standpoint. And like I said, if verses 5 and 7 of Philemon seem to imply that Philemon isn't just a friend of Paul, he's actually a partner in ministry, probably a huge part in helping keep this network of churches and missions going all throughout this area that we know as Asia Minor. What are the implications for all the breakdown of that support if Philemon, a key church member, goes down due to bankruptcy or matters of honor? This is something that they had to deal with in their situation. And we don't think about it because we're, we're so far removed in a different cultural situation. But they're there. They're questions you have to ask. So you've got just as many practical issues, though, on the other side, if Onesimus, as a convert, retains his status as a slave in the house. You've got just as many problems if he's not freed in some way. Think about this. It's difficult for us to see a solution where Onesimus can, on the one hand, be treated as a brother in Christ while performing the duties of a household servant. Much less this separation where, like, you could, where, like, see, we're so secularized, and I don't think this culture was very secularized, okay? It would be really hard for us to put Onesimus in the church box where there he's a brother of Christ there while church is in session, right? And then all of a sudden, okay, church is over, and now you go back to being, like, property again. Like, that doesn't work, right? That doesn't make any sense. That wouldn't last. You wouldn't be able to do that. Especially in, this, in such a communal environment as the church. And what would the implications be of his relationship as a, as a fellow disciple to Philemon? Would he be granted the same status as other church community members with the same rights to, like, rebuke and correct and hold accountable his own master the same way that any other believer would? What would that look like? How would that tear up the fabric and order of the household? I mean, these are even bigger questions when you consider who Onesimus might be. Remember how I said last week that his name, the context of the slavery practices, his name's not actually his name? It was a name that was given to him. It means useful, but the connotations are much greater than just the word useful. All right? The word implies a really high level of skill and acuity. Somebody that you consider essential. Somebody that you consider indispensable. You don't call your latrine scrubber or your goat herder my right-hand man. Okay? Anesimus probably is not a menial slave. If he's got great ability and position in the household, that just magnifies the potential problem either way. He has the ability, if he's, kept in, if he's kept in his box, to create big problems. He also has the ability, if 
he's just let loose in a legal sense to create big problems as well. And one thing I also highlighted last week is that many times freed slaves aren't really free in the Roman Empire. It was more of kind of this carrot that you dangle in front of folks to keep them in line. These deeply ingrained practices of kinship and obligation and patronage, they don't just disappear when someone gets freed in the empire. Most times you took the exact same role in the house that you did beforehand. Nothing really changed. You were still, it was just, hey, you're free. You still got the same job. You're still in the same position. Everything's still the same, but hey, you're free. It didn't really change much. In fact, based on historical documents we have on contracts of freed slaves, they almost always had all these conditions that included staying with the house, performing the same tasks, things like that. Some even had clauses where the master could revoke the freedom that they gave if the freed slave act in a way that the master didn't deem accessible. What kind of freedom is that really? There's not really any freedom there. It's not freedom the way that we know it. And the more that we study it, the more this kind of freedom seems to be a way to bring honor to the master rather than to bring some kind of upward mobility to the slave. So it really wouldn't even work. Things can't go back to the way they were, but things sure can't go the way of the culture either. But what if there's another option? What if there's another way? What if there's a redemptive way? When Paul first writes to the church in Corinth, he talks about the need to realize our redeemed status in Christ in chapter 7. Most of us gravitate toward this passage for the aspects of marriage and singleness and all those other things that it highlights. But there's also this tucked in verses 21 through 23. Very, very interesting statement. If you'll go there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 says this. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So it's not as simple as just stay where you were, but don't let it captivate you, this idea of what your worldly status is right now. Okay? For the one who was a slave when they were called by the Lord is now the Lord's freed person. Okay? So the one who was called as a slave into the Lord is now freed by the Lord. Look at this. Flipped. Similarly, the one who was free when they were called is now slave to the Lord. You all have been bought at a price. Do you see what's happened there? Paul's just kind of reached into the culture, pulled out the fact that, like, hey, you know what? We realize that, like, people that were slaves that get freed, like, they aren't really free and, and even in our system of obligation, a lot of people who are free, they aren't really free. They're kind of slaves already. Like, because of this, this cultural obligation to the entire empire, nobody's really free anyway. And he takes that and he pulls it out of the empire. And he says, but what if we were all indebted to a different kind of lord? What if we were all indebted to a different kind of master? One that didn't lord his power over us, but one that wrapped a towel around his waist and washed our feet. What kind of lordship would that look like? How would being a slave to that kind of master look? Because, let's be honest, we're all obligated because we were all bought at a price by his blood. It really levels the playing field, doesn't it? Well, if that's the kind of, theolo if that's the kind of theology that Paul's operating with here, 
which may not be a bad idea for us to operate with. Let's be honest. Because honestly, our idea of freedom is I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. And if you get in the way of my freedom, you're impinging on my rights. That's a really messed up, that's a really messed up concept of freedom. I think it has less in common with the freedom that we see Christ offering then then this structure does and that's really saying something i know okay but we need to consider this we need to consider that maybe our understandings of freedom have become so anemic and so self-centered that we don't even know what freedom's for anymore because if freedom is just so that i can determine the course of my steps all i have to do is go back to proverbs and hear the and hear the wise teacher say like Good job. Determine the course of your steps. Go ahead. You can lay your plans all you feel like. The one who is the Lord will still determine the course of your steps. And you can go kicking and screaming and complaining about your freedom or bumping into the walls because you keep going the way that you want to go and get all the bruises and scrapes that come with that. Or you might consider that he's still the Lord and that he's determining your steps. And if you started to match your steps with his steps, things might go a little better. Just a thought. It's kind of the whole wisdom that Proverbs is based on, isn't it? Okay? So if that's the mindset that he's coming from, you've got to realize he's actually referencing and reworking a very remarkable piece of Greek culture. Okay? It's a really complicated idea that he's reworking, but in essence, it was, it was an idea of sacred freedom sacred freedom for a slave. Works like this. As an act of devotion and sacrifice to a deity, a master could actually transfer ownership of a slave to a deity. To one of the gods. You got records of this all over the place. Okay? It's really cool. And by consecrating that individual to that god, the individual becomes the property of that god under their direction instead of a human master's direction. In essence, it's freedom without ties to a human being, but enslaved and obligated to the divine. And the way it's described implies a resurrection of identity. They're under the protection of the deity. They cannot be returned into slavery. Who wants to renege on their deal with a god, right? You know what I mean? I know I gave you this person, but now I'm going to take him back. Okay, like, that doesn't work so well, right? And they have the ability to regain their family and their community ties again. They can enter back into the house of their own free will. And now think of that idea now in terms of Christianity. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's grabbing something out of the culture and going, I'm going to redeem this. Okay, this is this, is this kind of like, spiritually ambiguous supernatural thing, I'm going to give it reality and roots in Jesus. Okay? In essence, this is what happens with Onesimus when Paul converted him. Healing and rebirth occurred. The disease of slavery and sin was put to death. And the ownership was transferred from sin to Christ. Is that not what we hear in Romans? Is that, is that our, we, we were slaves to sin, now we're slaves to Christ. There's just been a transfer of ownership now. Okay, so now 
Paul is kind of subtly, or maybe even not so subtly, nudging Philemon in his letter. Hey, let's take what has theologically already happened spiritually, and let's apply it practically and socially by taking this cultural practice and reworking it for real in Christ Jesus. Set him free, but don't set him free legally. Take him through the process of transferring his ownership to Christ. It's a perfect solution if you think of it, both practically and spiritually speaking. It redeems the entire situation, keeps the household in order. It places equal honor on both Philemon and Onesimus. And ultimately, it honors the deity, which in this case is the deity, Christ, above everybody else. It's a really, really, it's it's a really, really cool idea. However, underneath all that practical application, which which it may look like it costs Philemon very little, there's actually a really, really great spiritual sacrifice. And it's in the language Paul uses when he asks Philemon to welcome Onesimus back. We think of welcoming somebody as giving them a handshake when they walk in the door and saying, Hi, glad you're here. Okay, Or if you're Carol Kitson, you give them a big hug. Um, and that's great. But welcoming meant so much more in a culture that, that, that where hospitality meant so much more. If you welcomed someone, it was welcoming them into your household. And if you were welcoming into, the, your, into your household, you were assigning status to that person. You did not just welcome anybody into your household. I don't care how much they're encouraged to welcome the foreigner and the outsider. Culturally, it was, you didn't do that, okay? God wanted you to do that, but culturally it was very hard to do that because of the culture that they lived in. And so to welcome somebody in was to give them status. And Paul starts out with this welcoming, and he starts out kind of small, but every time he mentions it, he keeps upping the ante throughout the letter. See, the first time, in verse 16... He uses a word that's related to that word we know as phileo, that brotherly, steadfast friend kind of love. Okay? Kind of affection for how Philemon should, should welcome Onesimus. And that's hard enough because for you to be true friends with somebody in the Roman culture, you have to exist as social equals. So if he's going to free him by transferring his ownership to Christ, what he in essence is doing is saying, you're not under me, we're both under Christ, and therefore we are equal. And so you're going to have to welcome him as an equal. You're going to have to welcome him as a friend. But then he comes right back in verse 16, even just a little bit later, and the word he uses is not just friend. The word he uses is actually brother. So now it's not just your friend, but it's your family. You can't just welcome him as a friend that's coming to visit. You've got to welcome him as family that's here to stay. And now he kicks the ante up even more, and he goes for the unthinkable, okay? Now, here's, here's the thing, though. Let me, let me back this up for a second, okay? If Onesimus is Philemon's brother now, the welcoming can't be figurative. Philemon has to completely alter his understanding of who this person is, right? Not property, not beneath, not other. He's actually family. And then Paul adds in these modifiers. In the flesh... And in the Lord. And it's another subtle nudge. 
Philemon cannot maintain any kind of hypocrisy of treating Onesimus one day in every one way in everyday life and another way when church is in session. He's your brother in the flesh. He's your brother in the Lord. He's your brother when we're sitting here. He's your brother when we're out there. He's your brother when we're singing praises. He's your brother when we're having an argument. It doesn't matter when. He's here to stay. And his status has to be maintained regardless. But now here's here's where Paul kind of really, really goes for the unthinkable. Verse 17. Welcome him as you would welcome me. If Paul comes to Philemon's house, Paul doesn't come as a friend. Paul doesn't come as a brother. Paul comes as a guest. You need to realize something about welcoming a guest into your home. Is it to whom he is writing in the world that they live in? To welcome someone as a guest is to make yourself nothing and to make them everything while they're in your household. In fact, the only person that you accord higher honor to than the guest is the owner of the entire household. But see, here's the thing. Are we talking about Philemon's household anymore? Who owns the house that they're a part of now? It's not Philemon. The person who owns the house now is Christ. And so do you see what he's saying here? Look, if you're really, really serious about being this person who has refreshed the hearts of saints everywhere, you need to refresh the heart of this saint that's coming back to you. This saint that's hurt you. This saint that's probably lied to you and stole some of your money and run away from you. This person that even if you treated them nice, you didn't actually treat them as a person. You used to treat them as property because that's what culture told you to do. And you can't do that anymore. But you can't just be like, okay, you're not property, you're a person, and I'll treat you the way the culture treats you. No, 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 no. You actually have to treat him as family in Christ. And you actually have to treat him like you would treat me if I was coming in. Because that is the way of the family of Christ, is to elevate others with our love and forgiveness above ourselves. See, this really is the heart of the book of Philemon. And honestly, this is where all our lessons and all our theological insights over the past month have been driving toward. This practical intersection of Jesus' love for us and Jesus' love for those around us and how we model that, especially, especially when we are hurt, especially when we are dishonored, especially when we are asked to sacrifice for people that mistreat us, whether they realize it or care about it or not. See, that's the thing. So many times I hear people talk about the New Testament and they go, okay, you know, there's a lot of great ideas in there, but I just, I don't, like, I really don't see the practical application a lot of times, you know? Paul has all these really heady ideas, you know, and Jesus has all these great stories, and but like, how, what does it look like? This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. This is a picture that you and I can grab onto. Where we abandon our status. We abandon our rights. 
especially when we've been dishonored, especially when we've been hurt or mistreated. And we respond in a way that is supernatural. We, we respond in a way that is abnormal to the world. That does not make sense from a rational, logical perspective, but absolutely is the most vital, the most transformative thing in the world. This kind of forgiveness, this kind of love. How practical is our theology, church? For all we know about the love of God, do we know how to let it move us to forgive others in this way? Do we let it, do we know about how to let it elevate others above ourselves? How do we let it do that? For all we know about the love of God, how are we sacrificing in the way that he does for us daily? How practical is our theology? And what is actually growing in our hearts today? That's, that's the question that Philemon puts in front of us and makes us actually run out the door with and, and run into our everyday lives with. Is What's actually growing in our hearts? Are they the thistles of self-righteousness or justification that jab at those who bump into us by accident? Are they nettles of grumbling or fault-finding or, or accusation that sting those who rub us the wrong way? What's actually growing in our hearts? Have we allowed Jesus to cultivate the flower of forgiveness in us? That when crushed, it only yields a sweet aroma. A sweet aroma that smells like Christ himself. The smell of death to those who are perishing, but the pure aroma of sweet life to those who are actually hungry for it. And there are a whole lot of hungry people around us. What is growing in your heart today? What does God desire to grow in your heart through the power of this kind of sacrificial love? How does God want to take your belief and intersect it with reality today? You know, those are questions I can't answer for you, and that's why the sermon stops here. Those are things that we can't, we can only elaborate on them so much in theory. We've got to go practice them. We've got to go live them. We have to go actually apply them to our everyday lives. Otherwise, all of this, it fails to achieve its purpose. And so my prayer and my blessing for you is simply this, as we close this series on this book. May you grow in a practical theology. May you grow in a love that looks like this.